This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 46. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's installment is a Lessons from the Frontlines episode. What to do when an adversary serves their expert reports and disclosures and then immediately notices their own experts for deposition, forcing you to conduct a premature and possibly ineffective cross-examination that might be played later at trial. As you know, experts often live outside the jurisdiction where the cases are pending and so are frequently beyond the trial subpoena power of a court. As a result, their depositions are often played at trial in lieu of live testimony. So a hastily noticed and conducted expert deposition by your opponents of their own experts can put you in a tough spot, particularly where pre-deposition expert discovery has not yet been completed. Now, caveat here, as you know, our Lessons from the Frontline episodes are based on brand new court rulings pertaining to depositions. Keep that in mind because the cases that we spotlight in these episodes are literally fresh off the presses, and so the rulings might be withdrawn, might be modified, or could be appealed and overturned at some point down the road. Today's episode is based on a sanctions order in a federal case that came out 48 hours ago in the Northern District of Indiana. The case is Martinez versus Coloplast Corporation and Coloplast Manufacturing, full case citation in the case notes. According to the filings in the case, the plaintiff, on the same day she served her expert disclosures, allegedly just 15 minutes after serving an expert report, according to the defense, served two notices of stenographic deposition seeking to swiftly depose two of her own retained experts. Not only would these depositions thus be taken before the defense had a chance to depose them itself, but they were also set to take place before the defendant had served its own expert disclosures and reports. So the plaintiff here was moving very quickly, literally right out of the starting gates once expert discovery could begin. Uh, one of the defendant's concerns, according to its filings, was that in its words, quote, allowing plaintiff to depose her own experts before the parties have completed expert discovery and before the defendant has taken a discovery deposition of plaintiff's experts, would require the defendant to conduct a trial-worthy cross-examination of these experts without having had an opportunity to fully explore their opinions and the basis for them, close quote. So the defendant is essentially saying, look, the plaintiff could use these depositions at trial if the experts are unavailable. And that seemed like a reasonable possibility because the filings indicate that both experts lived outside the state of Indiana just beyond the subpoena power of the federal court. And, says the defense, we shouldn't be forced into slapping together a cross-examination in this situation before we've conducted our own discovery and had a chance to take a true discovery deposition of the plaintiff's experts before the plaintiff takes what could prove to be the trial deposition. So the defense starts the conferral process in this dispute before seeking uh, court intervention. They email the plaintiff's counsel and ask if they expect their experts to be unavailable for trial, to which, according to the defense, plaintiff's counsel in effect says they want to have the option of playing these depositions in the event of unavailability and apparently, since the experts both resided outside the state of Indiana, the use of these very hasty plaintiff's depositions at trial seemed like a realistic possibility. A defense counsel in its papers indicate that they attempted to work this out with the plaintiff and simply couldn't. So what followed was a motion by the defendants to quash the notices of deposition and a motion for protective order. 
The defendant's motion essentially repeats the arguments it made, saying allowing the plaintiff to depose her own experts first at this stage of the litigation would unfairly prejudice the defendant. It says, look, the plaintiff can ask her own experts any questions she wants at any time. She doesn't need to depose them. And the only plausible purpose for deposing her own experts before the close of expert discovery is to preserve testimony for trial. And that allowing a plaintiff to take a deposition to preserve her own experts' testimony before the defense has had an opportunity to depose them would thwart the entire purpose of discovery and deprive the defense of the opportunity to adequately prepare for the case. Now, to its credit, the defense lawyers in this case acknowledged in their filings that the federal rules don't recognize any distinction between discovery depositions and depositions taken to preserve testimony for trial. So this strategy or tactic by the plaintiffs is absolutely not forbidden by the rules. But the defense says the very purpose of discovery is to allow the parties to determine the opinions and positions of the opposition's witnesses, and importantly, to also prepare for effective cross-examination. Plaintiff, for her part, in opposing the motion to quash the depositions, had some arguments of her own. First, she said, well, look, the defendants didn't cite a single case in their filings in which a party was precluded from taking the deposition of their own expert just because an opposing party wanted to go first. Plaintiff also said that at least one of the experts was of advanced age. I think they said he was 77 and vulnerable to COVID. So she wanted to get the depositions down. A plaintiff further says, I'm not required to show their unavailability at this point, And that shouldn't even be a factor in whether the depositions go forward or not. They continued by saying, look, the rules allow anyone to depose any witness in any order. We don't need leave of court to do this. At least one of the experts has given testimony in related cases, and the opinions are very well known. So there's no reason to believe that the defense can't conduct a thorough and very effective cross-examination. They say the defendants know about these experts' qualifications, and they have reports from other cases showing that their opinions are based on medical literature. So the plaintiff wraps up essentially by saying, look, the defense can't meet its burden under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 26C1 of showing good cause to block the deposition simply because the plaintiff wants to depose her own experts first. Now, the plaintiff's arguments are technically correct. They are absolutely within their rights under the rules as written to take their own experts' depositions, and there's nothing in the rules that forbids them from going first. But the question here is, will that technical rule-based argument win the day? All right, so it's a fact that the federal rules since at least 1970 Uh, no longer have any fixed priority in the sequence in which depositions are taken. The current rules say discovery can be taken in any sequence. That means anybody can go in any order. So on the face of the rules, there's nothing to stop a party from immediately noticing its own witnesses, including experts, and taking those depositions before the opposing party does. I should also mention that Rule 26B4A, titled Deposition of an Expert Who May Testify, specifically says that a party may depose any person who has been identified as an expert whose opinions may be presented at trial. And if the rule in a given situation requires a report from an expert, the deposition may only be conducted after the report is provided. So again, plaintiff's position is technically correct and within the confines of the rules as written. The plaintiff provided her expert's reports and after doing so, although 
apparently, according to the defendant, within minutes of doing so, scheduled her own experts for deposition. All right, so in the first ruling on this issue, the federal judge granted the motion, quashed the plaintiff's notices of deposition of her own experts, and ordered the plaintiff to make her expert witnesses available for depositions by the defense. In doing so, the judge really didn't get into the weeds on the technical rules. In other words, the judge didn't really address the issue squarely of whether what the plaintiff was doing was allowed by the rules or not. And I suspect the judge didn't address that topic in that manner because the plaintiff's actions clearly didn't violate any of the rules as written. Instead, the judge simply said he didn't see any reason to deviate from the typical order of depositions in the case. And so with the ruling, he's allowing the defense to take what is a true discovery deposition of the experts before the plaintiff would be allowed to take anything resembling a trial deposition of their own experts. So the judge really sidesteps the question of technical correctness, and while he doesn't say so, seems to be really ruling from the standpoint of simple fairness. And he obviously had the power to do that, as does any federal or state judge, because here, uh, Federal Rule 26C and its state equivalents gives judges broad authority to determine how discovery will be conducted, including the order in which it's taken. So plaintiff's interpretation of the rules is technically correct, but the plaintiff loses on the spirit of those rules. And that was that, or so it seemed. But before I get into the next twist, which is something to look out for in your own cases, I wanna share a few thoughts about this outcome at this point in the case. I suspect that the defense was correct, that the plaintiff was trying to navigate them into a position where they would have to conduct a hasty, weak cross-examination of the experts that would very likely have been played at trial. And if you doubt that, listen when I talk about what the plaintiffs did next. And I also suspect that the defense was being genuine in saying that a rushed cross-examination without first having a true discovery crack at those experts in a traditional discovery deposition probably wouldn't have been effective. So interesting, aggressive strategy by the plaintiffs and probably the right reaction by the defendant to sound the alarm and seek a court order to protect its client by blocking the deposition. One last thought before I talk about the next twist in the case. I say again that the plaintiff's approach was technically correct. Once the expert report was served and because there is no priority or set order of depositions, the plaintiff was, based on the rules, technically entitled to depose her own experts immediately. On the other hand, you can't always win arguments on technical grounds alone. You might be right in scheduling a deposition in saying that the rules allow you to do it a certain way. But if there's something about the way you're doing it that strikes a judge as maybe not kosher, maybe not fair, maybe not what the drafters of the rules really intended, then the fact that your position is technically correct might not get you across the finish line. Certainly, the fact that the plaintiff served deposition notices of her own experts within 15 minutes, allegedly, after serving the report, which was the precondition to scheduling a deposition of an expert under Rule of Civil Procedure 26C4A, was an indication that this was an intentional strategy by the plaintiff and not simply something spur of the moment. All right, so on to the next twist in the case. A few months down the road, the defense scheduled the discovery deposition of one of the plaintiff's experts. The judge said they get to take that discovery deposition first, and at least based on the order, that's where the judge left it. So what did the plaintiff's counsel do at this stage? The day before that deposition, plaintiff's counsel cross-noticed their own expert's deposition and cross-noticed it as a videotaped 
deposition. As you know, cross-noticing means that after the first noticing party finishes their examination, you immediately continue the deposition as if it was your own. In this case, the defense proceeded with the deposition of the plaintiff's expert, but it took the position that the cross-notice was effectively a violation in spirit, if not in letter, of the court's prior order saying that the defense could take discovery depositions of the plaintiff's experts first. A few weeks after this, the defense set the deposition of another plaintiff's expert, and again, the plaintiff cross-noticed it as a videotaped deposition. Over defense objection in this second deposition, the plaintiff conducted a full videotaped direct examination of her own expert immediately after the defense completed its discovery deposition. Now, was this a violation of the court order that said the defense gets to go first in deposing the experts? Or was it a legitimate interpretation of the order and a legitimate use of the rules? Well, since it was cross-noticed, again, the plaintiff appeared to be in technical compliance with both the order and the rules because the defense got their discovery deposition first. But one might also be a little squeamish about that interpretation, given that the spirit of the court's prior order seemed to be that the defense should be able to depose the plaintiff's experts and, in essence, absorb that testimony with enough time to be ready to conduct a trial-worthy cross-examination if and when the plaintiff opted to reset her own experts for depositions. You probably can't prepare a trial-worthy cross of an opposing expert if the plaintiff's own deposition of her experts, which again may be used at trial, begins minutes after you finished your discovery deposition. All right, so because of the fact that the plaintiff cross-noticed her own expert's depositions and conducted those uh, follow-up examinations immediately after the defense finished its discovery uh, depositions of the experts, the defendant moved for sanctions on May 14, 2021, arguing, among other alleged discovery violations, that the behavior of the plaintiffs in cross-noticing the depositions violated the court's prior order saying the defense could go first. Now, bear in mind that the original February 10, 2021 order quashing the plaintiff's deposition notices of her own experts only said that the depositions could not go forward and that the defendant would be allowed to take discovery depositions of the plaintiff's experts first. It did not forbid a cross notice and it did not say that the plaintiff had to wait any specific period of time after the defense deposed her experts. The order is clearly silent on those points. Should the defense have contemplated the possibility of a cross notice? Hard to say. Sometimes you have to think about how the rules might be applied and read court orders and the rules themselves literally in order to imagine how things might play out and how you might need to plug gaps. In opposition to the motion for sanctions, the plaintiff said among the following. First, we properly videotaped the depositions of the two experts. The depositions were not trial preservation depositions. We said on the record that these witnesses would likely testify live. And the plaintiff pointed out that the defense spent almost six and a half hours questioning one of the experts as compared to the plaintiff's follow-up examination under the cross notice of just 26 minutes. The plaintiff also said that her counsel made clear during the two expert depositions that both witnesses, quote, would likely testify at trial. So the plaintiff argued to the judge, until either witness becomes unavailable, there's no reason for the court to address 
whether this deposition testimony should be allowed. And the plaintiff added, the fact that the depositions were videotaped is not indicative that this is a for-trial deposition because so many lawyers now routinely videotape depositions. All right, so what did the trial judge have to say? Well, he certainly wasn't pleased. The judge said, quote, as an initial matter, the court finds that the plaintiff's actions were in direct violation of the February 10, 2021 order. Court says, quote, the plaintiff's reasons for videotaping the depositions of the two experts are specious. As a result, the plaintiff is prohibited from making use of the two recorded depositions in this case. If at some point either witness actually becomes unavailable, the plaintiff can request leave of court to conduct an evidentiary deposition of the unavailable witnesses. The court continued by saying the plaintiff could not use the videotape depositions and the judge awarded costs and fees to the defense for attending the improper portions of the depositions of the two experts. So there you have it, some fairly aggressive scheduling efforts by a plaintiff to conduct their own examination of their experts before the defense could, and failing that, to conduct them the minute the defense's discovery depositions ended. So what are the lessons here and what practical guidance might we draw from it? Well, first, if you're in a jurisdiction where you've got to submit a discovery plan or report outlining various deadlines that you propose in the case, consider including a provision in your planning report providing for the order in which depositions will take place. Now, that often isn't necessary. You probably don't often run into lawyers who very quickly notice the depositions of their own experts. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying that it's not common. But if you're not sure how things might unfold with your opposing lawyers, put that in your scheduling report, whether it's state or federal, and outline those deadlines and provide a timing gap or temporal gap between your taking of an opposing expert and when the opposing party may conduct any deposition of their own expert uh, ostensibly for trial. I think for most part that lawyers who practice in federal court underutilize the Form 52. There are all kinds of things. That's the scheduling report that's submitted to the court for approval. There are all kinds of things that can be put into those reports to avoid discovery problems, but a lot of lawyers don't take advantage of it. Next point, if an opposing lawyer attempts to take their own expert first too early, seek court relief. The court is likely to be receptive to your motion. It doesn't matter, in my view, whether the rules technically allow the opposing party to depose their own experts or clients first. It just doesn't sit well with most judges. So you're probably on safe ground seeking to quash the depositions or seeking a protective order, however you want to frame it. And that's true even if you didn't specifically provide for the order in which depositions would be taken in your planning report if your case is one where you had to submit it. Next point, if the opposing lawyer doesn't seek to notice the depositions of their own client or experts first, but instead cross-notice the depositions before the depositions take place, consider at that point seeking to quash the notice or uh, seeking a motion for protective order. And you can make the same arguments that the defense made in the Martinez case that we've been talking about. Lots of good case authority cited in the various filings in that case and some good authority cited in the court's rulings as well. Next point, remember that a cross-notice of a deposition is just a deposition notice. So if your adversary is glomming on to your deposition notice of their client or their expert, it means that your adversary may well conduct a trial-style deposition examination 
and that you may be forced into a situation where you'll need to conduct a very effective cross-examination. All right, now let's take it from the other perspective. What to do if, as the plaintiff did in the Martinez case, you want to depose your expert first or a client first? Well, the rules clearly allow you to do so in the federal system and in most state courts. There is no order of priority in most courts, state or federal, in terms of how depositions have to be taken or who gets to go first. In fact, even if your adversary notices your client or your expert for depositions down the road, there's no prohibition in federal court or in most state courts from you then immediately noticing your own client or expert for deposition at some sooner date. But because deposing your own expert first or your own client first is likely to draw the proverbial jaundiced eye from the court, I suggest you develop some very strong facts to support doing so. In the filings in this case, uh, the plaintiff's counsel did point out that at least one of the experts was of advanced age and perhaps more vulnerable than most to COVID. And that certainly is an argument for getting that deposition taken quickly. But I think if I had noticed my own expert's deposition in this manner, I probably would have developed additional significant arguments for what I was doing and why. I mean, we're all pretty familiar with COVID at this point and its impact on various populations. And I suspect from the judge's perspective, he may have simply thought that saying that someone might be vulnerable to COVID really isn't the same as saying, I now have a legitimate reason to immediately schedule my own expert's deposition. We're, we're all vulnerable to COVID. Now, the plaintiff's counsel in the Martinez case certainly was free to come up with whatever justifications they saw fit. But because I think most judges view this sort of scheduling tactic with disdain, I think I would have worked hard to come up with more justifications than because I can and because the rules allow me to do so and because of COVID. And if I couldn't come up with more factual support, that might have been my sign that maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Now, believe me, I'm a very aggressive litigator, always willing to try novel strategies and tactics, always willing to push the rules as far as I possibly can. But racing to take one's own expert depositions is just one of those things that you suspect in advance isn't likely to sit well with the court. Clearly, there are benefits in doing so, no question about it. And the rules allow you to do that absent a court order uh, to the contrary. But you just want to make sure that if you're going to schedule depositions in this manner for that advantage, that you have all of your available justifications lined up. One final point. Uh, remember that virtually all deposition notices have language somewhere around the bottom that says that the deposition will be used for all purposes allowed by rule, including for discovery and at trial. So if you see something that looks a little out of the norm relating to the way that depositions are being scheduled, particularly with regard to timing, you want to give some thought to what's going on there and you want to seek court relief if the timing or the order of depositions is likely to put you at a serious disadvantage for trial. All right, that's it for today's episode. As always, thanks for listening and be sure to check out the book on which this podcast is based. 10,000 Depositions Later, the premier litigation guide for superior deposition practice. Now in its third edition at 450 pages, available on Amazon and just about everywhere you get your books.